Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. About global markets, and we talked about getting into global markets. Do you remember that now? So what do we say about if I want to do business in a global market? What what do we what are some of the things we talked about? Any takers, Kelsey? Yeah, so let's back up. We'll back up to right here. Yeah, that's what we're getting at. Bless you. So we talked about licensing, exporting, franchising, contract manufacturing. International joint ventures and foreign direct investment. Those are some of the content, contents, aspects we talked about. And there's this continuum, least risky to greatest risk. Um, before I get too deep, I want to make sure I capture all the uh, attendance. Is Elizabeth here today? Elizabeth, you are here? Okay, got you. Uh, Angel is not here. Mary Grace, hello. How are you doing? Good. Good. Logan, I see you, sir. Catherine, good to see you, ma'am. Um... Two Kelsey's, yes. Got one, I got two. And Diamond, hello, how are you? Gabriella, good to see you, ma'am. Stephanie, hello, got you. Garrett, got you, sir. David, hello. Be mighty quiet, David. How are you? I'm good. Good. Allison, Allison's not here. Okay. Um, John, got you, sir. Holly, no Holly. And Gracie, hello. All right. Sorry, I got to make sure I do that. That's my compliance stuff. All right. So let's get back to what we talked about left off on Tuesday. We talked about being adaptable to foreign markets, correct? We talked about what McDonald's had to do in order to be uh, compliant and, and acceptable to different markets. You can't sell the same product in every market. You might have to tweak it a little bit just due to expectations. You know, customers have different expectations. And so we talked about that already. So um, I'll pick up here and we'll continue. We talked about contract manufacturing a little bit. I'll retouch on it just in case. A foreign company's production of private label goods to which a domestic company then attaches its own brand name or trademark, part of a broad category of outsourcing. So basically what this is, if I'm a t-shirt manufacturer in Egypt and you're a t-shirt manufacturer in the United States, it makes more sense for me to make your t-shirts over there and put your label on it and me sell it versus you make them and then send them to me. You can see how that makes a lot more sense, correct? Um, in fact, if uh, any pickle fans in the house, what kind of pickles do you like? What do you like, Catherine? You like mouth pickles? How about you, Stephanie? I like the original. Original? Like dill yeah, pickles? Gabriella, what you like? Dill pickles? Any sweet people, sweet pickle fans? What's wrong with you? I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I like sweet pickles too if they're like bread and butters. Um, what do you like, John? Dill pickles, yeah. So is Mount Olive the consensus best pickle brand? Not just because it's right around the corner from us. What do you like? Grillo's. Who? Grillo's pickles. Grillo's. I'm not familiar. They're new. I just started trying them for the first time. They're a little yeah. expensive. Well, not crazy. It's probably like a dollar or two more than Mount Olive. Yeah. They, I'm not going to lie. They're pretty Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting you say that because even though Mount Olive has some different SKUs, 
SKU stands for SKU Stock Keeping Unit, just so you know that. Um, those are the, the different, the variations of different products. But even though they have different SKUs, they don't have, they haven't got really creative. I think the pickle market could use a company that steps in that does some wacky different flavors, mm -hmm. like flaming Hot Pickles or something, you know, or different things. Um, I like Mount Olive because it's literally the town I live in and we go to the pickle festival every year. But I do like kosher deals too. They're very good. But the reason I, I mention this is because when you go to Walmart and you pick up a jar of pickles, if it's the great value brand, you're actually buying Mount Olive pickles. And so I went on a tour of Mount Olive pickles probably eight to 10 years ago now. And they're telling me that, yeah, we make, we co-pack or we contract manufacture great value pickles. And I was like, well, what's the difference between your formula, the original Mount Olive recipe versus great value? What do you think the difference is? What's that? The brand? What'd you say? The label? That is the different ingredient. That's the only difference. The label is the only difference. So when you buy Mount Olive, or great value pickles, you're buying Mount Olive pickles with a different label on it. That's the only difference. And so that's pretty mind-blowing to think that consumers... We'll look at two products, and this one is significantly cheaper. You know, a Mount Olive pickle in Mount Olive uh, jar will cost you around $2. A great value will cost you around $1.50. So this is significantly cheaper, you know. And so, but yet consumers that are brand loyal to the Mount Olive will continue to buy that top shelf pickle, you know. And it's the same because um, Tide is owned by Procter & Gamble, which also owns Gain, which is the number two uh, manufacturer, but Tide is the number one in the market, even though it's the most expensive. But they're made by the same company. You would think, I mean, do we have any Tide fans in here? Tide versus Gain. What do you guys use to, do you wash your clothes? I'm asking. What do you, what do you, what do you like? Tide, is there, what do you like, Kelsey? I would say Gain. Gain? We, we have actually, I've actually evolved over time because when I was a broke college student, I would use anything I could get, you know. And then when I got married, well, I think we started with all. That was a cheap alternative, and I think that's owned by Procter & Gamble, too. Then we graduated to Gain, and now my wife, she insists that Tide is a better product. Do you think that is true? I'm, I'm guessing it is. Um, I don't really care as long as, I mean, I would use whatever, but uh, she says, yes, this is a better product, so we're going to use that. So we pay a premium for Tide products. I don't really care, but uh, I mean, that's just one of those things. I would pay for a premium peanut butter, but not, but not Tide. So yeah. on that note, what do you guys like for peanut butter? Is there a favorite flavor of peanut butter or type? Who? Peter Pan. Peter Pan? Okay. That's two strikes. Sorry. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I'm a Jif person, you know, so yeah, got, got to be Jif, you know, so are you creamy or crunchy? Anybody? Crunchy. Oh God. I knew there was a problem with this classroom. It's just, <laughs> How can you eat like crunchy peanut butter? That's like that's that's. You like both? They made uh, they made crunchy peanut butter as a psychopath test, and uh, you guys are telling me what you're you're consuming now. So, but I don't you know I'm, I'm being facetious. But uh, my dad likes cre uh, crunchy peanut butter, so I still don't I don't get it. But uh, but that's the thing. We have these different product SKUs because different consumers want different things, uh, and some consumers make irrational decisions. Um, let me give you one example before I move on. Um, when you guys go shop online, do you look for the absolute lowest price product? Okay. That's a normal thing, right? Look for the lowest price product. Do you do that, Kelsey? Yeah. I do that. I want to find the best product at the best price, you know, but there are millions of consumers that don't do that. 
They find the product they want and they buy it. And they don't really shop around. And this has been studies. Yeah, there, I mean, you know, you could have the exact same product right here. And if they looked a little bit longer, they'd find this one a little bit cheaper. But no, they found this one. This is what I want. I'm going to go ahead and buy this. And so, and the reason why I can tell you this, if you go to eBay or Amazon, you can find the exact same product at a bunch of different prices, correct? Somebody is paying that premium just because that's the one they landed on first and they're going to they're gonna pay that premium price. So we have this variety because different consumers have different mindsets and it doesn't always have to be rational. In my mind, I'm thinking I've got to be the price leader because that's what consumers are looking for, the lowest price. And there's a large chunk of consumers that are looking for that competitive price. Others, not so much. They don't want to invest the time it takes to look for it. So we talked about joint ventures briefly, a partnership in which two or more companies, often from different countries, join to undertake a major project, often mandated by countries as a condition of doing business, can increase your company's footprint and global growth, and can be used by competing companies to join forces. So some benefits and risks, shared technology, shared marketing and management expertise, entry into markets where foreign companies are not often allowed. But the drawbacks is stolen or obsolete technology becoming too large to be flexible. One partner might break ties. And once we get to the chapter, I think I mentioned this on Tuesday, where we talk about partnerships, LLC, sole proprietorships, and corporations. Yeah, partnerships can be problematic. So, and then uh, we've got a strategic alliance, a long-term partnership between two or more companies establishing to, establish to help each company build competitive market advantage. They don't typically share cost risk, management, or profits. Strategic alliances provide broad access to markets, capital, and technical expertise. So there may be, uh, the example I think I mentioned on Tuesday was where companies come together because uh, they could make purchases of resources at a cheaper rate if they, if they bundle together. So if I can buy this for 1000 you can buy yours for 1000 But if we bundle together, we might can buy both for 1800s because we're buying more. That would be a smart reason to, to save 10% of our resource buy. And so foreign direct investment, if you'll remember, is the most risky and the most difficult. This requires us to go over there, wherever there is, and set up a physical infrastructure. So um, foreign direct investment, buying of a permanent property and business in a foreign nation. Foreign subsidiary is a company owned in a foreign country by another company called the parent company. The primary advantage the parent company mandate maintains complete control over its technology or ex expertise. Primary disadvantage must commit funds and technology within foreign boundaries. And so, um, yeah, so just because you have an infrastructure over here, you might be playing by a whole different set of rules that are different from the United States. And there are challenges that come with that. Um, you've got to have the expertise. A lot of times these companies will hire a liaison that's an expert in that country to help them be in compliance with the rules and regulations to do business in that country. This is really designed for multinational corporations. There are some small businesses that do this, but it's much easier to uh, ship versus foreign direct investment. This is really for major players that have a lot of resources that can afford to do something like this. So an example, the United States has been and remains a popular spot for foreign direct investment. People come and do us. Global automobile manufacturers like Volkswagen, Toyota, and Honda um, have spent millions of dollars building facilities in the United States. Would you consider a Volkswagen made at a company's plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee to be an American car or a German car? What's your thoughts on this? German? Yeah, they're still going through the same processes that that company requires. Um, I bought a guitar over the summer that was made in Mexico by an American, -made, by an American company. Do I care as long as the quality is the same? I don't personally. 
You know, but some people are funny about that stuff. They want it to be made in the native country that the company is. I, it just depends on the consumer. Once again, a consumer like me doesn't care about that. Other consumers might. That's why we have options available. But for stuff like this, once again, as a consumer, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother you. But somebody, they might want something to be from that country of origin. And so buying American. So these are just a, this is just a list from the book about the different types of automobiles that are made in America from foreign direct investment. Toyota Camry, Honda Accord, Chevy Malibu, Nissan Altima, and Ford Fusion. All right, so I mentioned multinational corporation. This is getting into new content. A multinational organization is an organization that manufactures and markets products in many different countries and has multinational stock ownership and multinational management. Not all large global businesses are multinational. Only firms that have manufacturing capacity or some other physical presence in different nations can truly be multinational. Yeah, this is on the upper end of the scale. We're talking about the largest of the largest companies that are able to, to do this. It takes tremendous capital assets to be able to be a multinational uh, operation. I was listening to a CEO within the past couple of years talking about his operation, and it's operating against like eight different time zones in a dozen different countries, very complex business structure, and dealing with multiple denominations. So uh, I was just like, that is insane to think about, but these companies do it. You know, They set up firms across the globe and, do, and operate that way. So here's some examples. The largest multinational corporations in the world, Walmart, uh, $500 billion a year in revenue, State Grid, uh, Cinepec Group, China National Petroleum, Royal Dutch Shell, Toyota Motor, Volkswagen, BP, ExxonMobil, and Berkshire Hathaway. Has anybody ever heard of number 10? So Berkshire Hathaway is a group that was started by uh, one of the most famous investors in the world, a guy named Warren Buffett. Does that name ring a bell? Anybody ever heard of Warren Buffett? Yeah, maybe. So Warren Buffett is called the Oracle of Omaha. He's one of the most successful long-term investors of all time. If you're a business student, you, you, you need to be studying by Warren Buffett. Um, we may watch some content on Warren at some point in the class, but he has a very simple investment philosophy. Uh, invest in American companies over long periods of time consistently. That's it. Invest in American companies over, the, uh, that are uh, solid companies with solid financials that provide products that people want and need over long periods of time consistently. And if you do that, uh, you will be, be better off than you were before. Uh, no guarantees, but uh, do any of you guys know anything about investing? Uh, we won't digress much, but I, I like to talk about this and it comes up. You, you have something, sir? Uh, or, or, crypto, okay, I got you. Um, uh, you'll hear several different things over the course of this class about investing, but generally the idea is that as soon as you get into a career-based job, especially if your employer has a match, you want to take advantage of that. So as an example, my wife's employer offers a 401k match. So that means every dollar that she puts into that account, they match it with another dollar. So that's like if you give me $1, I give you two back. That's a great deal. That means that you're doubling your money instantly. So that type of investing is a no-brainer. And over long periods of time, there's this thing called compound interest, and your money will grow over time. So um, something we'll get into as, we, as the class moves along. All right. So let's talk about foreign direct investments a little bit more. Sovereign wealth fund, um, investment funds controlled by governments holding large stakes in foreign companies. 
The size of the fund and government ownership makes <clears throat> some fear they might be used for achieving geopolitical objectives, gaining control over strategic natural resources, obtaining uh, sensitive technologies. We're talking about billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars that are held in these nation-state funds. A um, lot of money and influence. So some socio-cultural socio forces to talk about. So culture. What is culture? Have you heard this word before? What does it mean? The board says a set of values, beliefs, rules, and institutions held by a specific group of people. So social structures, religion, manners, and customs, values, and attitudes, language, and personal communication. So the great thing about culture is every setting that you're in has a culture, even this classroom. This classroom culture is, let me please not talk to him as much as possible, please. That is the culture of this classroom. But I will occasionally laugh at his jokes. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 3.30. Thanks. Um, but, you know, every setting has a culture. My, my workplace has a culture. This classroom has a culture. Every classroom you're in has a culture. This institution has a culture. Your jobs, your home life, all of those different things have these different structures, manners, customs, values, and attitudes that you have, these interactions that you have. And what are some things that you personally value about the different cultures that you're a part of? Tell me what you like in culture. For me, I like positivity. I don't want to, when I go home and my kids are arguing, I don't want to hear that. You know, I'm like, that, that home culture, I want to be peaceful. You know, I got two girls that like to try to murder each other every night. And I'm like, guys, you need to chill out, calm down. Um, I got a little boy who who is constantly harassed by both of them, you know, so. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, same way? Yeah. What other, what other things about culture do you like or do you want to be a part of the culture that you're in at any level that we're talking about? One of them is safety, right? We want to feel like we're safe. That um, That's a big human thing. Um, what about um, that you're valued, that people look at you and see value in what you bring? Anything else come to mind? Attitudes, beliefs, customs. Anything come to mind at all? I'm pulling, trying to pull, I'm using my Jedi mind power to pull it out of you. You're telling me I'm a weak Jedi. I don't appreciate it. Respect. Who? Respect. Respect. That's a good cultural item. Yes, absolutely. Um, we want to feel like that people treat us fairly and treat us like we're like we're people and that we uh, are valued. So, anything else? Going once, going twice. All right, sold. You sold me. I'm moving on. So ethnocentricity is the next thing. It's an attitude that your own culture is superior to other cultures. This is beyond ethnocentricity. It's actually um, idea-centricity, meaning that a lot of people have a hard, hard time grasping or owning ideas that didn't generate with themselves, meaning that if, somebody, if you're in a workplace and you've got 10 people sitting around a table, so every, all 10 of them can have an idea, and very few of the 10 could say, if it's not my idea, I don't, it's okay if it's a better idea. Let's go with that better idea. It takes intelligent and smart individuals to say, um, my ideas doesn't have to win. You know, I'm okay with whatever the idea is as long as it's the best idea. And so, um, yeah, we see this time and time again where people of different cultures say, oh, you know, our culture and way of life is the best way, the only way. And it's very limiting because every culture has a way of life that has something to offer. Business people need to understand cultural differences and think globally. The way that I would perceive value, remember that idea of value? 
It's going to come back over and over again. The way I look at things and perceive value may be very different than the way you do it, the way that a member of your family might or the way a member of my family might. When um, I look at something that I think is awesome, I'm like, man, this is really great. I'll turn to my kid, hey, look at this awesome thing. And they're like, I don't get, I don't, I don't get it. I don't see it, you know. And I'm like, what don't you understand? This is incredible. And so this value proposition is very subjective. And so business people need to understand that just because you resonate with the message, the product or service, not everybody might feel the same way. And so, oops, did we say that? So um, Coors Brewing Company put its slogan, turn it loose into Spanish and found that it translated as suffer from diarrhea. Okay. Purdue Chicken used the slogan, it takes a strong man to make chicken tender, which was interpreted in Spanish as it takes an aroused man to make a chicken affectionate. Uh, on the other side of the translation glitch, Electrolux, a Scandinavian vacuum manufacturer, tried to sell its products in the U.S. market with the slogan, nothing sucks like an Electrolux. KFC patented the slogan, um, finger licking good, was understood in Japanese as bite your fingers off. And then lastly, but not least, PepsiCo attempted a Chinese translation of come alive, you're in the Pepsi generation that read to Chinese customers as Pepsi bring ancestors back from the dead. All right, come alive. <laughs> yeah, and imagine the embarrassment if you are the marketing person that has this slogan in English and yet you put it forth to be translated into a native language and it comes out as this and you don't, you don't recognize that. And so um, the reason this is part of the lecture is to think globally. You need to, just because you don't understand a language, you need to understand exactly what's being said because you represent what's, what's being put out there. Yeah. Um, you see companies over and over again that will misstep, and then they have to dig themselves out of a hole. Uh, and there's a ton of examples. I'm not going to get into it right now, but we will be talking about some of those missteps. So ready to travel abroad? Know your cultural differences. In Turkey, it's rude to cross your arms like I'm doing while facing someone. In many Middle Eastern countries, you should not eat or shake hands with the left hand because it is considered unclean. In India, you should never pat anyone's head. It's where one's soul is kept. And in Brazil, your meeting may not start on time because punctuality is not important to their culture. Yeah, and speaking of which, we live in the South. And Southern culture is different than other... I know you've lived in other places. Uh, you, do you have some experience living up North or out West? So what is different about Southern culture than from those places? Um, everything is a lot... I'm, I'm from New York. Everything is a lot slower. A lot slower. Even the way we talk, right? Yeah. yeah. Can I, can I ask you... And don't, don't, don't be afraid to offend me. When you got out here and heard the way we talked, how wacky was that? Be real. Yeah. Sure. I get it. When I met my wife's parents, true story, I went to see these folks who were from Duplin County. I could not understand what they were saying at first. Like it was, it was so deep south southern that I was like, "What are these guys talking about?" Like it took me a couple, took me a while to adapt to their culture to understand, to be able to translate. Here's the weird thing, though. Uh, I now live in Duplin County, and so when I'm at home, I almost change my language because I enunciate when I'm here and I try to speak plainly. But at home, uh, the drawl comes out harder, you know. And so, 
I'm a little more southern when I'm at the house. That's that's a weird thing. Do you guys talk differently at home than you do in public? I'm sure you know. You talk more more southern or what? So, does anybody else do this, or am I or me and Garrett? You do this too. So, are you more comfortable in your language at home, or are you just kind of? I mean, I talk to everybody in a way that they can understand me. Okay. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Right. That is so wacky that you say that because um, it's wacky that I use the word wacky. But uh, when I yeah when I talk to my father in law who has a very thick southern accent, I speak with a very thick like Andy Griffith southern accent to him because that's the language he understands. You know, and so I've never thought about it, but it's true. You know, you talk to different people in different ways, and so. That's really, really wild that you said that. So, very cool. Anybody else have anything to add on this? But this is what we're talking about. Just the way we adapt to our different family members and friends is the way that we should be thinking about how do we adapt to cultures, you know, and speak, speak with different in individuals and interact with them. So, some do's and, um, let's see, do as the Germans do, not how in, uh, to embarrass yourself in Germany. Always use titles like Dr. Frau or Herr. Uh, always provide food and drinks for your birthday. Don't remove your jacket until your host does. Wear conservative business attire. Anything else is considered sloppy. Never jaywalk. Always keep your hands on the table when eating. So if you're going to Germany, this is the, the modus operandi that they, they roll with. And if you want to be in compliance, that's what you'll be doing. And so uh, economics and financial forces... So exchange rate is something that is uh, also we should be cognizant of in global markets. The value of one nation's currency relative to the currencies of other countries, the high value of the dollar, the dollar is trading for more current foreign currency, foreign products become cheaper as it's trading for more. That means uh, foreign products become cheaper. If the dollar value is lower, the dollar uh, trading for less than foreign currency, those products become more expensive. And the floating exchange weight is where currencies float and uh, value depending on the supply and demand for them in global markets, so I mentioned you mentioned crypto a while ago. So tell me about crypto. What is the situation with that? It's it's there's a lot of uh, things. There's there's this idea of value associated with that, correct? Yes, the whole idea is value. So just like crypto, current any currency, whether it be cryptocurrency or a nation's currency, there's this perception of value. And so um, if a country is doing well, it strengthens their value proposition to say, we have a, function, a well-functioning government and country, and these, these dollars or whatever currency it is has a valuable association. But if a country is not doing well, people lose faith in that value proposition, and so that value of that currency might decrease. And so um, you've seen it happen many times over history. Um, the German uh, mark when, when it crashed down and after World War One, where you have wheelbarrows of cash, people trying to exchange that for bread. Uh, recently in, oh gosh, where was it? Venezuela, their, their currency collapsed in the past few years. Uh, and you had, um, the situ we had, there was a reporter that went to Venezuela and he was saying that a $20 bill was not as valuable as $21 bills. People would pay you more, more um, was it not Peruvian, it was uh, Venezuelan dollars. I think they were using the peso, more, more pesos for $21 bills than a $20 bill. Do you know why? Because the, app, the utility of $21 bills was higher, meaning that if they went to a market, that market might not have changed for a 20. 
And so it was harder to do business with a $20 bill than it is to have $21 bills. So they would pay a premium for that currency because that currency represented a better value exchange than the, the peso did So because the prices were so up and down. They said the menus at the restaurants in that country would change on a daily basis. They had post-it notes over all the prices with updates on prices because of all the uh, rapid inflation that they were going through. So <clears throat> let's talk about devaluation and counter-trading. Devaluation is lowering the value of the nation's currency relative to other currencies. And counter-trading is a complex form of bartering in which several countries may be involved, each trading goods for services or ser uh, services for services. Right now, we have been the dominant reserve currency the United States has for decades. We want to continue to do that, but there are whispers that um, we might have some competition. So <clears throat> we'll see what happens. Uh, who, who knows? But I don't see us not being the dominant currency or the world reserve currency. Um, I'll see that changing any time in the near future. And so legal and regulatory forces, things to think about uh, with global markets. There's no global system of laws. That's an important point. Meaning that uh, as we go through the, these um, thinking about global exchange and global trade, <clears throat> there's not one universal arc of laws. There, is, there are some organizations we'll talk about in a moment that can help, but you have to abide by the local laws. Laws may be inconsistent. U.S. businesses must follow U.S. law while conducting global business. Organization uh, for the Economic Cooperation Development, or the OECD, and Transparency International fight teen corruption and bribery in foreign markets and have had limited success. Why do you think corruption pops its ugly head up in foreign markets? Because if they don't have a strong enforcement system, that's going to lend to officials and, and people that are involved with this trade to say, hey, there's an opportunity here for me to step in and make some money. And so these types of things happen in less regulated areas. It happens here too. So uh, countries related to highest on the corrupt business practices, Somalia, you're the winner, number one. Syria, number two. South Sudan, Yemen, North Korea. Sudan, Guinea, Basal, Equatorial Guinea, Afghanistan, and Libya. I think Guinea got mentioned a couple times here, a couple different versions. Uh, but, <clears throat> yeah, that's not bragging rights to be at the top of the list for corruption. But if, it, if I'm a vendor, if I'm somebody that's thinking about selling, these countries would be on my not wanting to do business in because of this corruption. Yeah, I mean, if you've got an order that's going into one of these companies and then the vendor says, oh, yeah, we need $10,000 to make this happen. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like something I want to get involved in. And you could get in trouble for doing that bribe as well, so not, not good. So physical and environmental forces to consider. So developing countries have limited transportation and storage systems that make international distribution difficult or impossible. Technological differences also influence the features and feasibility feasibility of exportable products. And so, yeah, that's one consideration, too, if you're going into a country that has limited resources, limited infrastructure. <clears throat> um, I hope we get the opportunity to watch this um, short documentary about the cocoa bean and chocolate production. I know I mentioned it to you earlier in the semester, but it's fascinating to watch how these farmers harvest the stuff and to transport these bags of cocoa beans from their farm to basically a gathering place and then to move those down these, the roads are basically just dirt roads that are all kinds of horrible position, uh, horrible condition, not good infrastructure, and it makes it very difficult and expensive to manufacture this stuff. 
So trade protectionism, these are forces that we use in order to limit um, trade, in order to prevent organizations from coming in and dominating and <clears throat> chasing out local business. So trade protectionism is the use of government regulations to limit the import of goods and services. <coughs> Excuse me. It allows domestic producers to survive, grow, and produce jobs. A tariff is a tax. So when you see that word tariff, think tax. Tax imposed on imports. It's a protective tariff. Is uh, import taxes and revenues tariffs raise money for the government. And so the reason why we have tariffs, once again, is to tax imports to discourage so many of them coming in. And generally, governments will raise that tariff in order to dissuade uh, a company from sending too much stuff in, you know, as you send in more stuff. And there might be a graduated tax, too, meaning that if you send us 1,000 units, this will be what your tax rate is. If you send us 2,000, it's going to escalate to this tax rate. And so, once again, the idea behind this is to protect local producers and local business people, not to run them out of business. Because if we destroy our local economy by importing goods, then that's a bigger problem. You know, we may have got cheap stuff or cheaper stuff, but we've, you know, we've shot ourselves in the foot and uh, destroyed our local economy in the meantime. A couple other things we can do to protect ourselves from that. Import quotas, a limit on the number of products in certain categories that a nation can import. Hey, we're only going to let you bring in 1,000. That's it. We're not, that's all you can bring in. An embargo is a complete ban on the import and, or export of a certain product or the stopping of all trade with a particular country. Political disagreements can lead to embargoes. Can anybody think of a trade embargo we had? Cuba. Yes, Cuba. We had a trade embargo with them for decades. Um, and that's why we have this saying, you know, Cuban, Cuban cigars, you can't get them, they're illegal. It's because all uh, trade with Cuba was embargoed. That is easing, though. I don't have an update for you, but my understanding is uh, it's becoming easier and easier to go to Cuba and to do trade with Cuba now. Um, I don't know anybody personally, but I've seen stories where Americans have gone to Cuba to visit. Cuba is like a place that stood still in time because of the embargo. All the cars they had were 1950s models, and so they've just been fixing those cars up for decades. Um, <clears throat> so non-tariff barriers are not as specific or formal they can be just as de detrimental to free trade. Political disagreements can lead to embargoes. So a embargo or a quota is an example of a non-tariff barrier or a non-tax barrier. So questions on anything we've talked about so far, comments, ideas, inspirational quotes for me. Words of encouragement for me. Here we go. All right. You know, this tastes better because it came out of a $30 to $40 bottle, so. <sighs> Here we go. All right, so this is an organization that helps. Remember we said that there's no laws for the entire global business, but we do have a couple organizations that do help. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT, is a 1948 agreement that established an international forum for negotiating mutual reductions in trade restrictions. The idea is we want to allow for free trade. We don't want to allow for trade that's going to be detrimental to our economy. Once again, we like the idea of doing trade. That's, that's great. We don't want trade that's going to lead to the detriment of our economy. World Trade Organization, WTO, an independent entity of 164 members, nations, whose purpose is to oversee cross-border trade issues and global business practices headquartered in Geneva. The idea with this is, once again, we have a global basically Senate 
where these individuals get together and they try to reduce friction and barriers with trade. It's not always easy and every country is sovereign and has their own ideas. Um, we're going to talk, talk about the Eurozone at some point, uh, and that is a really weird setup, but uh, I don't know if it'll last forever. It's just got, it's very complicated. But this is a good idea because um, if one country is trying to do business with another country, they can go talk to a representative and say, hey, uh, we would like to do this and talk about how we could make this happen. So it allows for this idea of we want to remove barriers and not have uh, so many, so many op obstacles in order to do trade. So members of the European Union, um, and I've got enough time, I'm going to go ahead and show you this, but this is uh, what, look at the map, it's got non-members, members, applicants, and exited the, the European Union. So, but with the time I've got, I want to show you this because it's so nuts. Have you guys heard about the European Union and the Euro, all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, imagine the United States going together with like 20, 30 other countries and we have a joint uh, money system. Let's see. Where are you at? I would like to search. There we go. Come on. You got to believe. You got to talk to your, your IT. There we go. Yeah, let's see. Right. I, uh, I, this is it. I don't, I don't know. Let's see. I'll be able to tell if this is it or not. I need more volume.
room of you, the executive body that proposes new laws. Every member state has its own commissioner, but they're supposed to be politically independent, bound by a promise to represent the interests of the EU before the whole countries. Each commissioner is in charge of a specific portfolio, similar to a government's cabinet of ministers. This institution is based in the Belgian capital, Brussels. Now, the European Parliament. It is based here in Brussels, but also in the French city of Strasbourg, where its members meet 12 times per year. This is where lawmakers vote on laws. Presently, it has 751 members of the European Parliament, or MEPs, from 28 member states. However, with the UK's departure from the EU, that number is set to come down to 705. Importantly, this is the only European institution that directly represents EU citizens. Every five years, citizens elect their representatives to the European Parliament. Finally, let's look at the Council of the European Union. It's made of ministers from the different EU member states. Ministers with similar roles, whether it be overseeing finance, education or defense, meet regularly to discuss, amend and adopt laws. The Council of the European Union, together with the European Parliament, are the main decision-making bodies of the EU. But don't confuse the Council of the European Union with the European Council. The leaders of the EU also meet in this building for quarterly summits. Discussions here often happen at the highest level, which is why you will see heads of state like the Chancellor of Germany and President of France meeting up in Brussels. Other important European bodies include the European Court of Justice, the Court of Auditors and the European Central Bank. Based in Luxembourg, the ECJ ensures European law is interpreted and applied in the same way across the EU, kind of like the US Supreme Court. Also in Luxembourg is the Court of Auditors. It acts like the Union's CFO, responsible for looking after the community budget. And then there is the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, which sets monetary <laughs> policy in the Eurozone. Yes, that's right. The Eurozone, not the EU. This is another important distinction. Currently, only 19 of the 28 EU member states form the Eurozone, while the remaining 9 are still using their own national currencies. The EU is a complex political arrangement. Critics say that it will not survive due to the many differences of opinion between and within each country. And with tens of thousands of people across dozens of nationalities working for the EU, its institutions have also been criticized for its bureaucracies and complexities, saying it makes it hard to get things done. At the same time, this arrangement has lasted more than 60 years and has so far achieved its main aim, avoiding war between the neighboring countries. Okay, thoughts. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching. You're welcome. If you'd like to see more of our explanation. I, I would not. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> what, what's your thoughts on that real quick? My first thought is one word. Very confusing, right? <laughs> it's very confusing because I've watched similar videos for years now in different classes, just like this class, explaining what the EU is in the Eurozone, and it's still confusing to me. 
Um, and there are a lot of critics. Uh, they mentioned Britain left the EU. A lot of reasons, but Im- imagine all the various different types of culture, ideas, groups that we have in the United States, but then we all try to have a consensus in this one nation. Imagine trying to do that with 28 nations and the culture of France and the culture of Italy and the culture of Luxembourg. I mean, it's like, what? So, yeah, I mean, I, the good news, the, the reason is to keep peace in Europe and to try to reduce barriers for trade and also try to have a one currency as much as possible to uh, reduce that exchange rate and stuff. But there's, there's several downsides. What do you guys think? Give me your thoughts on this. Good idea, bad idea. It's going to make it. It's not going to make it. <clears throat> it's Thursday. I don't care anymore. I hear you. can read your mind. So. All right. We'll wind it up very quickly. So we do have a trade <clears throat> um, union within our borders or within our, our continent. It's the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, it's actually been renamed as the USMCA, um, which is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Um, but NAFTA, the first one, created a free trade agreement among the United States, Canada, and Mexico. It was passed in 1993. It attempts to boost job growth, fight poverty, improve environmental control, and close the wage gap between Mexico and the United States. And it, what, largely failed. So this idea is like, hey, we're going to do something that's good for the economy. But what it ended up doing is outsourcing jobs. Americans lost their job. People in other places got employment. But uh, the big winner was companies. Companies were able to uh, save money by basically outsourcing jobs and adding to their uh, bottom line. So, all right, guys, any questions about anything? Let me go over one more thing before we break up. So chapter one, if you have not done that, it's absolutely due tomorrow. Last day for acceptance on that, and tomorrow is uh, like a week late, but you still could turn it in tomorrow. Um, Chapter two is due now. It will be also due tomorrow. You will have extended time, but you will lose points between now and Friday week. Um, chapter three is not going to be new due till next week, which is the chapter we just did on global trade. Uh, any questions about any of that? Actually, I told you a story. Chapter three is not due. Um, chapter three is actually test number one, two, and three together. That's not going to be due till next week. So, yes, sir. I haven't seen chapter three in my life. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. I haven't seen chapter three in my life. It's not chapter three. It's the test on one, two, and three. So that's why there is not a chapter three. I just went to a test instead of uh, a quiz. So. Other, <clears throat> yes, uh, I'll go ahead and let me make a note to send that. I meant to send it on Tuesday, so good question. Slides. Good question, yes. You have a question too? That was the same question? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not a seated test, it's online. Good question. All right, guys, enjoy your Labor Day weekend, and we'll see you back on Tuesday. Be safe, have fun.